Good morning, everybody. We are working our way through the book of Romans backwards. Backwards because the last uh, four or five chapters of the book of Romans really gives this the context. And I have um, really appreciated it from a studying perspective and from a preaching perspective. This is probably my fourth time preaching through the book of Romans. And um, all the other times, we've started with chapter 1 and end with chapter 16. But um, the, the, the beginning of the book of Romans is so weighty, up through chapters 11, uh, with a lot of challenging uh, theological material and not a whole lot of application. And by the time you get to, to the end of the book, you're kind of tired, at least I find in, in, in preaching or studying it. And so um, you need all of the weight of those theological teachings. Really, it's a deep ep- exploration of the gospel to get to the... To, to, to empower the kind of life that he's instructing us to live in the last few chapters. And this week, this is a heavy week. I mean, I think all of the weeks at this point have been weighty in terms of what does it mean to be obedient? That's one of the three questions that we're asking and trying to answer as we work through the book. What does it mean to be obedient? Because Paul states at the beginning and at the end that his mission is to bring about the obedience of faith um, in the nations of the world. And so we at some level are a, are a result of Paul's mission. We are a church planted, all right? And we are an expression of God's work to advance the gospel in this world. He does that through, through gospel proclamation, gospel strengthening, church strengthening. And so we have to ask the question, what does it mean for us to be obedient as we follow Jesus Christ as a church? Second question is, how do we then participate in that mission of Christ in in also expanding the gospel. And then the third question, which really came up last week, um, was what does it mean to be righteous? Because we looked at this challenge that was going on in the Roman church between really uh, ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles and the, the judging and the disdaining that was going back between each group and how similar that is to a lot of the things that we can take on as standards of righteousness or standards of morality in our own culture and let those standards infiltrate to the church to where we start judging and disdaining one another because of things that are matters of opinion. Okay, and so we don't eat a lot of meat sacrificed to the idols like the challenge was in the Roman church. Um, That's not a big deal in our culture. But what is a big deal in our culture are a lot of other kinds of things. And just for one example I used last week was uh, meat that is actually meat from animals and then meat that is not actually meat and is from plants. And so obviously all of these kinds of things come up. And, and Mark asked the question uh, last week, well, then what does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be good? Um, and so I said, well, that's really what the rest of the book is answering. What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be a, a good person? What does it mean to have a, a fulfilled and complete, uh, and to use Paul's term, happy, happy life? That's the question we're trying to answer. And so to answer that question, chapters 12 and 13 actually give us the best picture of what lived out righteousness is, all right? Now, the big issue in chapters 14 and 15 is that they could actually come together 
as people in a house church and share a meal together. That's what the ultimate expression looked like for the Romans, okay? Um, Behind that was the teachings from chapters 12 and 13. And as I think that you'll see, uh, the instructions and standards of righteousness are quite weighty. Uh, And after going through today, I think that you'll all agree that it would be much easier just to set up some rules about what we're going to eat or drink than to, than to really actually <clears throat> excuse me, obey these instructions. So the beginning of chapters 12 and 13 begins with a, a, a two verses that are very familiar. If you've been in the church or been reading your Bibles for a long time, if you're, if you're new to that kind of stuff, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 are one of the verses that a lot of people memorize. And it is the preamble or introduction to the two chapters. And so the two chapters, we're going to break up into what it means to be righteous in the world, which is the last half of chapter 12 and all of chapter 13. And then what does it mean to be righteous in the church, which is the first half of chapter 12. So because we're starting at the back and going towards the front, which will change up after we get through chapters 9 through 11. We'll start at chapter 1 after that. Um, Today we're going to look at what does it mean to live righteously in the world. Now we'll see that instructions for us to live in the world are going to have implications for us as we live in in the body, the church. Uh, but it's really within the context of that sphere of life in the world. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 before each of these weeks because each one, it it gives us some insight into how we're able to to follow these instructions. So Romans 12 chapters, excuse me, Romans 12, 1 and 2 say this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so the, the part I want to draw out from verses 1 and 2 today is the part about not being conformed to the world, but being transformed. Next week, we'll look at what it means for us to present our bodies, plural, as a sacrifice, singular, which is an intentional uh, grammatical error on Paul's part to say that, listen, you all are collectively called to a single common vision and purpose. But today, what does it mean to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds? So there is a, a, um, an idea present here. So do not be conformed. Both words, to be conformed, uh, to not be conformed, but to be transformed, carry the, communi- carry the idea of, of change. Okay? There's a change that is going to happen in our lives. We have one of two options. We can be conformed to the world and its pattern. 
All right, and the idea of being conformed is that you are steadily growing in likeness to a pattern. Okay, that's what this word conform means. Steadily growing according to a, a particular pattern. The pattern is the world. The pattern is becoming a worldly person, becoming a fleshly person, becoming a, a natural person of this world. That's one option. The other option is that we would be transformed, which means literally to be made into something different. We're going to change. We're going to change. We're either going to change and become increasingly like the world, or we're going to be transformed into something completely different. Our natural state is to become like the world. Our renewed state is to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It's like, uh, I think, from the biological world, animals, right? Let's take, for example, a cat, okay? Kittens eventually become cats, right? Uh, we have a, a woman in our house church who has a kitten. I think it's a demon kitten. And it's just going to grow to become a, an adult demon kitten, you know? That's what it's going to become. And in my, well, I, I won't go off on cats. Those are issues of my opinion. Um, I have a dog. I'm not real fond of them either. But anyway, <laughs> the, the, we also see in the animal world caterpillars. Caterpillars don't grow to become big adult caterpillars. They are transformed, or the Greek word is actually uh, metamorphosis. They, they undergo a, a, a change of their very nature. They're no longer these things that crawl along the ground. They are things that fly. And that's the idea. Are we going to become like the world, which is basically we, we are cast into this mold and we're just going to be increasingly like the world, or we are going to become something completely different. And Paul is urging that we would become completely different. We would become Christ-like. We would become Christ-like. Now, how does that happen? That happens, through, that happens through mind renewal. And he starts out and he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. All right, now, the mercies of God are what are explained in chapters 1 through 11. And the idea is that you cannot fulfill chapters 12 through 16 without understanding chapters 1 through 11. And so the hope, and, and, I, and I feel this urge within myself, to be quite honest with you, um, but I hope that as we go through Romans and today's chapter and, to, and next week's, when we get into the details of what righteous living looks like, there's, there's a growing desire within us to say, you know, I, I really want to understand this gospel in a way that creates and transforms us into this kind of a person. That's the goal. Well, what does it, though, mean to be renewed in mind? Well, um, in contrast to what's going on in the Roman church, righteousness, okay, the good life, the complete life, the full life, the happy life, it does not come through privilege. According to the world, it comes through privilege. It comes through power, but not according to Christ. 
Because all that is doing is creating division and hostility in the church. It's breaking it up. It's not according to Christ's pattern. Um, we are going to find out that it comes through the Holy Spirit, through faith. Well, how? We're going to have to wait. We're going to find out that it does not come through works. We cannot work ourselves. The doing of good deeds is not going to create the righteous life. We can try to be good. We can even try to be good according to what we're going to learn today in terms of what a righteous life looks like. We're not going to be able to work ourselves into it. It can just become another law. If we don't approach this um, with the Spirit through faith, then it's just going to be frustrating, and we're going to continue to work ourselves into a pattern that is increasingly like the world. It, it has to be something that comes as a consequence of being transformed. Our very natures have changed. Um, and it's going to take time. It's, it's wisdom, not just knowledge. Knowledge is involved. Paul says in Colossians that we are being, that to put off the old man, put off the old self um, with all of its practices, since we have put on the new self and are being renewed with knowledge after the image of its creator, which is Jesus Christ. So knowledge is a part, but we are deceived if we think that, even if you can explain to me Right? If you could explain to me, what does it mean to live by the Spirit through faith? If you could even explain to me textually accurately what that means, which is not an easy feat. Having knowledge of what that means does not necessarily mean, well, it doesn't mean that you will experience it. The knowledge has to be there. Uh, but there is a transformation that must take place through that knowledge that, that, that Christ is ultimately bringing us to. It's, it's a wisdom versus knowledge, and it takes time. It takes, it takes um, steeping and soaking in the mercies of God. All right, now, chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans are some of the most written about and discussed and debated and studied texts of all Scripture, of all Western culture, actually. And they are not easy. And a comprehension of those things is going to take time. Going to take time. And, and so after today's sermon, after next week's sermon, we should all be increasingly like, okay, I really, really, really want to understand what's in those 11 chapters. Because it's a high bar and it's a high calling that Christ is calling us to. Martin Luther said that we are in, in constant need of being renewed in the fundamental teachings of the gospel, of justification, of which Paul's going to spend a lot of time on here in the book of Romans, on what it means to be justified, on the, on the work of the Spirit that is sanctifying us, on the, on the work of glorification that is awaiting us. Paul Martin Luther says we, we've just got to constantly have our minds in the gospel because it is so easy for us to slide off into becoming trans conformed to the pattern of the world. Because... It, it's actively working upon us. The world is actively working upon us. So it's a constant fight. It's a constant mind renewal. 
I have found that the, the, the most effective um, way of, of renewing my mind and, 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 and thinking about it, um, studying it, memori- I, I find memorization and meditation, just thinking about what does this mean. And, and you can even get to the point of saying, like, what does it mean? Um, but something that you're memorizing and studying and meditating on um, is, is something that your mind is increasingly soaking in. And so passages like um, put aside then anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. This is from Colossians, this passage I'm memorizing right now. All right, I can tell you what those mean. But to have them on the forefront of my mind and to be thinking about them in the context of my human relationships um, is a whole other matter. Being able to explain what they mean is not the same as, as applying it and living it and having it available. And so, so as you think about deepening and renewing your mind in the mercies of God, I, I would strongly encourage you to think about devoting some time on a daily basis to study or even to memorization of some of these key passages as we go through. Some of these passages out of 12 and 13 would be great. All right, so the content here, we are at 12:14. So there's, there's this big section, what does it mean to be righteous in the world, I think can be divided up into three chunks. There's righteousness in terms of the dynamic of your human relationships, that you have everyday relationships with people. Then there is righteousness in terms of how we are approaching government authorities. And then there's righteousness that's just uh, uh, what we would call a moral righteousness. What does our moral lives look like? So relationships with people, government, our relationship with government, and then the, the quality of our moral life. And, uh, and we're going to, I mean, it's, it's, these, are, these, are, these are those kinds of passages that are easy to read through, easy to say what they're saying, very difficult to apply. <laughs> In regard to our relationship with, with people, um, you can see four strategies. You bless your enemies. You empathize with people. I'm going to go through these four in a little detail. You pursue peace and you love your neighbor. So first of all, you bless your enemies. You curse. You don't curse your enemies. You bless your enemies. All right, so there are people in the world that are going to hurt you. The way of the world is to retaliate with some sort of revenge or vengeance. It's the way of the world. Paul says, no. You are called to something different. And as we're going to see, what, what these instructions are showing is a, is a power that is clearly otherworldly. Um, Paul's concern and Jesus' concern for us isn't that we um, become these warriors of justice in the world. Right? That may be part of what we do. Paul wants to show that we have known and are extending 
the power that Jesus Christ had when he was on this earth, in this world, and endured the suffering that he did for the sake of others. That is, the, that is, what, that is what Jesus is wanting to do with us. He is wanting to make us just like him. Okay? He's the king of kings and lord of the lords. If he could have come and set up and established his kingdom, that's not his nature. In Philippians chapter 2, being in the nature of God, he didn't assume his authority and power. The authority, the, the, the nature of God is, is, is the way of love and grace and forgiveness and mercy as a demonstration of power. And so it is much easier to retaliate against those who hurt you. It takes a special power in the midst of being hurt and wounded, persecuted, suffering, even physically, and then to turn around and to do something good. He, it literally, it's make happy those who are hurting you. Now, if we're all honest with ourselves, and if I'm honest with myself, I don't even live this way with the people that I'm supposed to love and I'm close to. There are failures all over the place. My spouse, my kids. Okay? Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who do good and make those happy that are harming you. How, how consistent are you with that in your daily relationships? That's strategy number one. I mean, we can just kind of stop there. <laughs> Say, okay, that's going to that's gonna take some true transformation because that is not in my nature. That is not in our nature, people. That's human nature. That's human nature. It's not in the nature of Jesus Christ. And we are to be transformed to be like Jesus Christ. The most likely scenario to bring about change in a person that is hurting you is not retaliating, but to show kindness and to love and to do good and to make them happy. As he says, you don't, you don't overcome evil by doing evil. You overcome evil by doing good. And he's talking about people are doing evil to you and it's unjust and it's not right. You want to you overcome that? You want them to stop? Do good to them. Do good to them. You put an, and you, you'll, you'll put an end to the evil that's being done, and you're very likely to develop a friendship. See, this is, these are instructions not just on how to become like Christ. They're instructions on what does it mean to be a, a witness and, a, and, a, and, a, and, and proclaim Jesus in this world. This is showing Christ to people. And it's not just, I mean, it, it, there are no instructions to husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and slaves in the book of Romans. It's not what's, those aren't the issues that are pressing. The issues are, are they unified as a church and presenting as a church a unified witness of love and mercy and forgiveness and the power of Jesus in this world? If they can't even demonstrate that in a house church meeting, how are they going to be able to do this in the world around them? And so we've got to ask ourselves, are, are we showing kindness and blessing those in our, who are hurting us in our families, in our house churches, and in the world? And in the world. We're going to get to what it means to, to live life as a church next week, but we're going to, and we're going to see some similar ideas. Empathy. Empathy is connecting emotionally 
with others. He's saying, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. To do that, that means we have to be in the lives of people. We have to enter into those lives into where we, we have an affection and a love for them to such degree that we participate with them in their emotional experiences. And he's saying, do not, he says, do not, um, part of this empathizing is, 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 is see yourselves as equal with others. I think some of the translations say, um, think the same, all of you think the same. Um, the idea, though, is that, is that think of each, think of the people in your world as equal with you. And what this is going to do is it's going to create an ability to enter into people's lives. If you're standing off from people out of, out of arrogance, because he says, do not be haughty. Um, if you're standing off from people because you think that you're better from them, you're not going to be able to enter into their lives. You're not going to become friends. You're not going to be able to show them what it means to be Jesus Christ. If you think of self as too low, that you're, then you're always going to be in this place of, of insecurity, and I'm a victim, and you're not going to enter into other people's lives because everybody's always hurting you. Put yourself on the same plane with everybody else. Everybody is all the same in the eyes of God, equal. Think of yourselves as equal, he says. That's going to give you the ability to engage relationships in a more effective way. And he says, don't concern yourselves, don't be haughty, but concern yourselves with, the, with those things that are of the lowly. Of the lowly. And so the text says... Um, I want, to, I want to read this specifically here. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. All right, so we are to take, so the haughtiness, the haughtiness creates an, um, an, an envy and an orientation towards the world that is always going to be wanting to get to that next level. He's saying, get out of this arrogant mindset of becoming better than everybody else. That's the cycle of the world. Make an intentional effort to associate with those on the margins. That's what he's saying. And it's here I would say that as a church, what I would really love to see, what I would really love to see, beyond the work that we're already doing in the jails, okay, and that's a very marginalized population in a whole lot of ways, Besides our efforts in, in the, the treatment programs at Metro Hope and in Twin Cities Ministries and, and in our transition housing, beyond the things that we are engaged in there in, a, in an intentional effort to associate with the lowly, what I would love to see, and I'm praying that, that we have households here in the church that have relationships or a sense of call to people that they know and are aware of that are on the margins and to catch a vision for planting a house church in those neighborhoods. That's, I would love to see that, okay? I am not moving again. We moved up here out of a calling to plant a church in the Twin Cities, and I sat down with an experienced church planner and pastor and coach. He'd been here for decades. And I sat down with him and, and just thinking about, okay, we're going to move to the Twin Cities. Where are we going to plant a church? Where are we going to start? And he pointed to some areas, George, you would not work there. You would not work here. Here's where you could work. Just He knew me, okay? He knew how I was culturally. He knew how I, just all kinds of things. Uptown was one of the places he thought we could go. 
And he specifically said, George, you will not make it in North Minneapolis. And I understand why. But I believe that we have people that are called to places like North Minneapolis, that have relationships and friendships with people in North Minneapolis, or the various other areas around the Twin Cities where marginalized populations live. I would love to see us as a church make that intentional effort to associate with the marginalized uh, through the planning of house churches in those neighborhoods for the long-term effort of the church all right, to become increasingly reflective of our culture. All right, of our culture. Number three, so, that we, so the first strategy is to bless your enemies. The second one is to empathize with others and to associate with the lowly. Again, completely opposite of the world's pattern. Third one, pursue peace. Pursue peace. As far as it depends on you, pursue peaceful relationships. All right? So this is, again, it's kind of a, maybe a big picture of all these instructions. You are going to be attacked. People are going to hurt you. People are going to offend you in the everyday parts of life or simply because you're a Christian. Pursue peace. Don't take vengeance. And love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Don't put yourself in a position where you are a burden to your neighbor. This is the passage where he says, we didn't read it this morning, uh, do, not know, do not owe anybody anything except the obligation of love. All right, this, this passage isn't teaching that we are not to have debt. <clears throat> it's not the context, and I'm not going to go into a huge explanation as to why. You can send me an email. I can reply back to it. The idea is that you are not um, a weighty burden on your neighbor. You are to be a force of love, which means you are making sacrifices for the good of your neighbor, right? You're not to be somebody that's just a consumer, and you take and take and take from the people that are around you. You are to be one that is sacrificially giving yourself for the benefit of others, even when they're an enemy. So bless your enemies, bless those who hurt you, um, empathize emotionally, get involved into the lives and relationships with people so that you can connect with them, associate with the lowly. These are intentional things, just like Jesus intentionally came from, from glory into this world as a servant. Um, pursue peace, love your neighbor. That's, that's the strategy for our human relationships. All right, so we move into the second one, government. Government. Now, I don't think, so what was happening in Rome, I mean, you have to remember that there was um, intentional government discrimination and persecution against the Jews and the Christians, right? And the logical response to that would be, why would I want to pay taxes to a government that is using those taxes to persecute me? Doesn't make any sense, does it? That's what he's writing to what he's writing to. It makes absolutely no sense at all. Now, I don't think we have, I don't think we have, I've never heard in this church, okay, I have heard it from Christians, but I've never heard in, from anybody in this church um, an argument against paying taxes. I, I had a friend once who is uh, an older friend who, who developed a bad attitude towards the government 
got to a point where he had a lot of really well-educated uh, lawyers and financiers. and got to the point where, where on, on a year that he made like $2 million some dollars, uh, filed a, a tax return, and literally, I mean, I saw the tax return because I went to his trial at federal court, and they showed the tax return on the... He, he said he owed no taxes. And then he was sent to prison. And it started not out of this desire not to pay taxes. It started with the more weighty obligation that I think we do need to pay attention to. I don't think anybody in here has issues with paying taxes, partly because most of us that are working jobs in this world are required by law to pay taxes, and their employers take taxes out. We don't really have a choice in a lot of ways. The weightier burden is that we honor and respect the government. That's a weighty burden. Now, the two ideas of honor and respect, um, honor means to highly value something, all right? You can, you can highly value a material possession, okay? Think about things that you really enjoy and love, all right? Car, uh, your house, or a type of wine, or a type of food, or you can name it. There's lots of things that we highly value. That's what it means to honor something. And then respect means to hold with a sense of reverence and even fear. And even fear because if an authority exists in your life, they have some degree of control over you, which is what it means to be in subjection to release authority unto another person, that they have control over you. And authorities have that. And so there's a, with authorities come this highly valuing and, on, and, and respecting and holding in high regard and revering and fearing even that, that authority. I think this is a challenge for us. Not because I've detected anything peculiar <laughs> with us, it's just because it is just increasingly, our government seems increasingly um, like a three-ring circus. I heard on the radio the other day, this is a three-ring circus, and that was a member of Congress saying this. The way of Christ is to recognize that God has ordained governments to maintain civil order, punish evil. Governments that don't do that effectively eventually destroy themselves, and that is the story of, the humans, of human civilization. Jesus isn't saying that governments are perfect. What he's saying is that they've been given a purpose by God. And, and you've got to remember that he's talking about the Roman government, and if you guys think that we have a lot of things that we could say about our government... Jesus and Paul and Peter and all of these folks had a lot more things to say about the Roman government than we do. We have to highly regard, we have to fear, we have to treasure, we have to treasure, and we have to obey our governments. As much as you're tempted to think and to say things that are derogatory about our government, it is not the way of Christ. It is not the way of Christ. Again, Christ isn't wanting us to become 
these warriors of justice. He is wanting us to demonstrate a power that he had that is able to endure whatever the world throws at us. And that in the midst of that firestorm of whatever the world can throw at us, we are responding with a humility and a love and a grace that shows that there is something here empowering these people that is otherworldly. Remember Christ said, if we, if we are united in love, together, abiding in him, the world will see that, that we are from God because they're not going to be able to see uh, something that the world can create because the world's pattern in the midst of these kinds of dynamics is to retaliate and have vengeance and to take revenge and to seek your own good and to keep climbing the socioeconomic ladder to become a person of the world. That's what the world does. We are being called to a very fundamentally different type of lifestyle that demonstrates the power of Christ. Remember in Colossians chapter 1, the prayer says that we would know the, 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 the will of God and to know God in a way that would give us a power. This is in chapter 1, verse 9 of Colossians. It would, that we would know the will of God so that we would have the power to endure with joy and patience and thanksgiving. That's what power is by the gospel. Yes, there's signs and healings and all these kinds of things that you see in the book of Acts. Those come and go depending on the culture and the context and God's purpose. The enduring power that is a power that is much more uh, reflective of Christ and what he did is the power to endure suffering, to bless others that are hurting you, and to get into the lives of the people that are in need. That is a power that simply the world cannot have. The third one, moral lifestyle. His argument is this, the age of darkness is, is passing, the age of light is upon us, get out of bed, put your clothes on, and be ready for the work that has to be done during the day. That's his argument. Put on light, get out of the darkness. And, and the idea is that, listen, live as if your life is constantly under exposure. That's the gospel. The light is dawning, the Apostle John says. The darkness is passing away. Paul says live in the light. Live in the light. Think and act on a moral nature as if you're always under the light. Typically, we engage in things like drunkenness, orgies, drinking, sex parties, sexual immorality, envy and fighting. We typically engage in these kinds of things um, where others can't see. Paul is saying, the light is upon us. The darkness is going, is gone and is going from this world. Live as if you're in the light. Don't think of yourself as in the dark, shielded by what it can hide anymore. And it's got, it's got three things. Avoid drunkenness and orgies. Avoid licentiousness and sexual immorality. Avoid envy and fighting. And basically what he's saying is that there are three things here that will lead to, to deeper things. Drunkenness is the beginning of Sex parties, drunken sex parties. Drunkenness gets worse. 
Licentiousness, which is um, a disregard of law, like I don't have to follow any rules, eventually will lead to sexual immorality. Envy, which is being jealous of what others have, will eventually lead to conflict and fighting because you're fighting to obtain this thing. Don't do these. Don't do these, he's saying. So there's, there's our relationships with people that define what righteousness is. There's our relationship and our approach to the government that defines what righteousness is. And then there's our moral life that defines what righteousness is. And you're kind of left with this sense of, how can I do that? How can I live that way? <laughs> uh, how can I bless those who hurt me? How can I truly from the heart respect and honor my government? My president, my representatives in Congress and the Senate. How can, I, how can I truly stop sinning in all of these various types of ways? Substance abuse, sexual immorality, they seem like they're never going to end. And that's really, I think this chapter and the one we're going to look at next week, um, they really show this, I think, just open wide for us, this sense that this is impossible. This is impossible. It's, it seems like it's impossible. This is an impossible lifestyle. And that's why um, we, we have to come to a point where we see that the gospel does provide the relational fullness. So we're not drawing upon others to be full. We're not drawing upon the rich to be like them, and we're not abusing the poor so that we can get ahead. We're not hurting others because they hurt us, because even in their hurting of us, we still have a, a relational wholeness that we get from Christ. The gospel provides the promise of a future kingdom where righteousness and justice will reign. And so we can sit back and recognize that this is not the way it's going to always be, and to trust that Jesus is on his throne, and Jesus is sustaining all things. And because Jesus is sustaining all things, I can honor and respect my government and the people in that government. And, the, the, and that the gospel brings a fullness to our lives that I don't have to engage in all of these um, quickly fleeting efforts to bring joy to my life through licentiousness and drunkenness and sexual immorality. I, can, I, have, a, I have a fullness that is found in Christ. I don't need material prosperity. I don't need these things to feel full, and that's what the gospel brings us. And so, again, the burden of these instructions presses us, I think. I really want to learn this gospel that Paul's talking about. Let me pray.